In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today again, as we should always when we pray or study the Holy Scriptures. Give us the inspiration of your Holy Spirit on the subject that we will be discussing today, the probably the most important subject of not only Holy Scripture, but of all human history. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all thanks, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to be discussing the most important event in the entire history of mankind. That sounds, woo, that sounds pretty big. And it is. If you think about how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has affected mankind down through history, even prior to that, from the time of Abraham uh, to down to the time of Christ, and then from there on, there's been no other human being, no other person on earth that has affected humanity uh, to the depth that Christ has. And if we understand that, and if we take it to heart, then it should be something that we would want to know better. Have you ever been sort of uh, tantalized by some thought or a comment that somebody's made, and it sort of works on you, and you just try to figure out more about it, and you do some research, and you go to the Google and the other programs on the Internet and search it out. Well, that's what you should really be doing about understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So that is what we're going to be talking about in this meeting. Now, we've talked about in past meetings of Jesus being on a mission almost like on a road, and of course, the way the gospel reads, he is on his road to uh, Jerusalem, but really it's more of on a road to the end of his mission, and that is what his life, death, and resurrection is all about, the culmination of his mission, his purpose for coming to earth in the first place. we review just quickly the purpose of his coming was to be the perfect sacrifice offered to the Father for the reparation of the sins of all mankind. Mankind in himself had nothing that he could offer the Father in reparation for his sins. And so the Father had to give us something that was worthwhile that was acceptable, that was perfect. And the only thing that is perfect is God himself. And so he gave us a part of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, who came to us in the form of a human being like any other human being is born because, and this is the important part, because he represents all of mankind. He has taken upon his back, so to speak, 
the sins uh, of all mankind and suffered in a perfect way for the reparation of those sins to be offered in the, in the sacrifice, the reparation, to be offered back to the Father in forgiveness. And that is what we did. Next week we will talk about the third part of this event. When we talk about the event, it's really three parts. Just like the Trinity is three parts. The life, the death, and the resurrection. Or the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are not three events. It is one event, but it has three parts. And we will talk about the third part, the resurrection, next week. But today we want to concentrate on the end of the mission. He's reached the end of the road, so to speak, and now he is facing the culmination of his mission. But there are certain things that still have to be accomplished. Remember, he is leaving his authority in the hands of the church. That is, the apostles who were the nucleus of the original Catholic church. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus giving the apostles the keys to the kingdom and the power to bind or to loose all forms of doctrine and procedure. And in that, there's really, keep it simple, stupid, uh, pardon the expression, but, you know, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. I had to throw that in because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when you get into a real serious subject, you know, it, it becomes so intense, but you got to have a little relief now and then. Uh, but Jesus did not want people to get so bound up in laws and rules and regulations as the Jewish people did that it became almost prohibitive to breathe. He wanted us to be in a doing situation where we help each other, where we give counsel and example to each other on behalf of our own sins and the praise and honor and glory to God the Father himself. So let's begin with that and get into the subjects of today. Even though Jesus has reached Jerusalem and the place of his final uh, act of love, there are certain things that have developed all along the way. For the last three years of his life, the Jewish leaders have conspired against him. They didn't want to accept what he had to say. They ignored, really, the essence, the meaning, the purpose of what he was saying for three years because they were afraid of losing their job and their power and their prestige, etc., etc. Just like they did with all of the other prophets. 
And, of course, most people at that time considered Jesus as a prophet. They didn't know that he was the Son of God until later, until they finally got it through their mind and their heart that this was more than just a prophet. So during that time uh, that he was living here on earth, they accepted, that is the general people, accepted Christ as a prophet, along with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all of the others. I mentioned those three because those are what we call the major prophets. All the others are considered minor, not because of the quality of what they said, but because of the quantity uh, of their writings. All right, <clears throat> But what they said was uh, of value and important. And if you look at all of the prophets and kind of spread them out on a spreadsheet, uh, you will see that the message is pretty much the same. But it's applicable to different times and different places and different people throughout the 500 years that the prophets reigned. Who was the last prophet? It wasn't Isaiah, I would doubt. What's the last prophet before Jesus? Malachi. And that was when? Well, it was probably the second or third century BC. Okay. Yeah. Actually, the prophets were spread out quite a bit over time. 500 years, roughly. Yeah. And they were, it's a, your question is interesting in a way. The prophets were brought in to counteract the evil of the kings. Remember, Judaism did not have a king until about the 10th century. God was their king, and God was their leader all along. But they clamored and demanded to have a king so that they would be recognized as a nation in a line with all of the other surrounding nations. God warned them, to Samuel, that if they had a king, that certain things would be demanded of them that God would not otherwise have demanded from them. And he goes through a long list of demands. All right, they said that's okay. We'll abide by that, but we want a king. So then they hired Saul. Well, Saul was okay in the beginning, but then he kind of got uh, the big head from all the power he had, and he did not turn out to be what God wanted. So then God uh, directed Samuel to anoint. Uh, David, and David and his David's son Solomon were what we call the beginning of the golden age of Judaism. But after David and Solomon, it went sort of downhill from there. The prophets were brought in to counteract that. God did not want to step in and uh, disturb the goodwill or, let's see, the free will of the people and the kings that followed David and Solomon. And so he brought in the prophets to counterbalance that and to teach the people the right way of doing things versus what the kings were telling them to do. Um, so the whole idea of the prophets 
reign pretty much from the 10th century down to about the 4th or 5th, well, maybe the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. Okay. Um, actually, they uh, had a very short reign, but some of them, such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, uh, lasted for quite a while. Now, Isaiah, you got to be careful because there are actually three people represented in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 1, uh, chapter 1 through 39 is what we call the primary Isaiah book. Chapters 40 through 55 are Deutero-Isaiah, or the second Isaiah, and from 56 to 66 is the third part. All right, And they cover different time periods and for different purposes, but the style is pretty much, and the message is pretty much the same. All right, but let's get back here to Jesus being considered one of the great prophets, uh, but as Jewish leaders disliked what the prophets were saying and killed all of them, uh, they did the same to Jesus. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but... Um, you know, we have to kind of understand that. All right. So there was a lot of intrigue uh, and conspiracy, etc. We won't go into all the details because we've got uh, too many really important things to um, discuss this morning. Uh, the anointing at Bethany. This is a rather strange little incident, but it's important in a way. Uh, this woman while Jesus is at, uh, I believe it's the home of um, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, this woman comes in and pours a very precious uh, form of uh, incense and oil on the head of Jesus. There is no name mentioned here, so we cannot apply this to any one person. Uh, and the apostles and the, two of the other people say are aghast almost at what she did because they recognized that this was a very expensive oil. They were not concerned with what she was doing as far as uh, giving honor and glory to Christ. They were more concerned with the value of the uh, oil and perfume that was being poured out here that could have been uh, sold and given to the poor. Well, they weren't really interested in that. They just wanted something to complain about. But Jesus said, leave her alone because she is anointing me uh, in advance of my death and burial. So he knew exactly what was to come. He knew that he was going to be crucified in a short time, but that was part of his mission. He was willing to accept that. I had a Jewish lady ask me just the other day, well, more than the other day, recently. She said, you know, it's terrible that they didn't allow Jesus to get married and have a family just like everyone else. And I thought, oh, lady, you know, You've really missed the point altogether. 
but I didn't have the time nor was it the place to sit down and explain to her. But I did say, if you want to learn more about it, I just said he had a mission and that wasn't part of it. And I had to let it go at that. Um, because, it, you know, I would have had to start from first grade on to explain to her all the details. Uh, but the whole idea of being anointed in advance, I think, is interesting because it allows us to uh, know that Jesus knew what was coming. Uh, then we have the story of the betrayal of Judas. Judas um, was one of the chosen twelve. Uh, he knew better. He was with Jesus for uh, at least three years, if not more. But he betrayed Jesus because, and this is a theory, nobody knows exactly uh, his motivation, but the theory is that he was expecting, like the Jewish leaders, uh, that Jesus would become an earthly type of king and get rid of the Romans. And that he, would, along with the other apostles, would become, you know, the, the top echelon uh, in this new order. And, of course, when he found out, when Jesus started talking about his death and resurrection, Jesus, Jesus or Judas, I'm sorry, got disgusted with that and uh, turned against him, uh, both in mind and in heart, and sold him out uh, for 30 pieces of silver. But the one thing that Jesus had to um, develop and institute before he left was what we call the Last Supper. And that is probably the most important part of this altogether. Jesus, when we get into chapter 28, the end of it, he says he will be with us always. But he wanted something tangible for us to understand who he was and the fact that he was with us always. And so he takes what was the Passover meal or the Seder service which was what he was and his apostles were celebrating at the Last Supper. And he turns that into a different type of celebration and a different type of service or um, it's a senior moment here. A different type of offering to the Father that could be something that we in our day would always be aware of his presence among us. And so he institutes the what we would call the nucleus or the very beginning of the Catholic Mass. And that is the essence of the consecration of bread and wine into his body and blood. Now, during his time, and if you read chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew, 
you can tell that Jesus, along with other teachings, had talked about giving mankind his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. And of course, that caused a lot of problems because of its misunderstanding. And if you take it on those words alone, it's kind of ghastly of thinking of eating somebody uh, and drinking their blood. Remember, Moses declared that consuming any blood of any kind, of any type, was wrong and a great sin. Um, and he did that for hygiene purposes because blood carries the diseases more than any other part of the human body. And so blood became a big no-no in Judaism. Now here Jesus, in his uh, three years of teaching, has declared you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course a lot of people will go, Ugh, yuck. Uh, but what he was saying now is, more understandable, but when he institutes the Mass at the Last Supper, when he consecrates the bread and he said, this is my body, not this, but this, the consecrated bread. And he does the same thing with the wine. This is my blood. Not what's in me, but this, the consecrated blood. I wished the priests would emphasize that at the Mass so that people would understand, you know, and emphasize the word this as they hold up the bread and they hold up the cup of wine. Because it is so important that we see that this is truly the bread, I mean the body and the blood of Christ. If we go back and think about the times when Christ fed the 5,000 at one time and another 4,000 at another time, uh, and he fed them all out of just a few loaves and fish, if he was able to multiply a few loaves and fish to feed 5,000 people, certainly he would be able to take bread and turn it into his body and wine into his blood. And so we have to understand when we go to Mass, we are part of a whole community that is worshiping God the Father through Jesus Christ. The Mass is not there to honor Jesus. It is there to honor the Father and give thanksgiving to the Father for giving us Jesus as the sacrifice that was acceptable to the Father for our sins. It's a little convoluted here in a way, but that is the way it's all... <coughs> worked out for us and we have to understand that let me go over that a little bit again the mass that we go to on a daily basis or certainly hopefully on on a Sunday 
is a sacrifice where we are honoring the Father through Jesus Christ by consuming his body and blood, the body and blood of Christ in the communion, in the bread and the wine. And we do so in thanksgiving for accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made 2,000 some years ago uh, in Jerusalem for the remission of all mankind's sins. Is that clear? Anyone have a problem or a question on that? I hope that will help you to look at the Mass in a little more religious way, a little more comfortable way within the mind and the heart. Because the Mass is so important, and yet it just bothers me when I see people uh, coming up to communion, particularly when I was a Eucharistic minister, coming up to communion and receiving the body of Christ or the blood of Christ and then walking back and saying, hello, Joe, and hello, and doing all kinds of... They have absolutely no understanding of what they just did. And that is that really troubles me. And I'm sure it troubles God, too, because they're totally ignoring or not understanding what they have just done. The other thing also that bothers me is when people take the host and pop it in their mouth and that's the end of it. When you receive the host, think about how you would receive a friend, your best friend, at your front door. Would you just open the door and, you know, walk away? Would you just open the door and say, yeah, come on in, and then go on to something else? No. If he or she is your best friend, you know, it's hugging and whatever, all kinds of recognition. Do the same thing with the host. At least look at it and recognize that you are holding the body and the blood of Christ himself. That is why it is so important. And yet, you know, we're all guilty of not doing that properly, I'm sure. So I hope in a way that you will begin to at least try to do that. The Mass is a sacrament. Years ago, we used to talk about going to Mass and Communion. How many of you are more mature people remember that, particularly pre-Vatican II? It was a very common thing. Oh, I went to Mass and Communion. Well, you can't separate the two. The sacrament of the Mass is the entire Mass, including Communion. If you do not go to communion, then your Mass is missing something. I won't say it's wrong. I won't say that you've sinned or anything. But you're missing something. The same was true in the Jewish Seder. 
in the Passover meal, if you did not consume a portion of the lamb, then you did not fulfill the requirements of the Seder. And that's true even today. Going back to the old days, I can remember at 11 o'clock mass, there's an altar boy. You'd look around, and virtually nobody would come to me. Mm-hmm. Because it was too long to fast. Maybe yeah. once in a while you get one. Then you say, oh, But that's the reason that we separated mass and communion, because if you went to 11 o'clock, you didn't go to communion. Yeah. Well, that's true, and that's why that's why they reduced the um, restriction of eating to one hour before Mass. Yeah. How many of you people still observe the sacrificial uh, fasting of one hour before going to Mass? Okay. Yeah, a lot of people have forgotten that altogether, but that still exists. And it it is a, well, look at it this way. You don't go to somebody's house that you know or you're going to have a sumptuous dinner and then grab a quick Big Mac on the way. (laughs) It's out of respect more than anything else. You know, God's not going to slap you down because you had, you know, a glass of, apple juice, you know, just before going to Mass. Um, Water is accepted because there's a number of people that, you know, require water at any time. And I don't like seeing it, but I've seen people, you know, take a big jug of water to to church and drink it right in during the Mass. But that's acceptable. But the Eucharistic fast still exists as a rule in the church. Okay. So please try to remember that. Okay. Any other important questions about the Mass itself? Yes, sir. I have one when you walk into the back. When you talk about the whole thing, you always walk in when you walk into the church. That's hard to see you. That's why so uh huh. You go in and you know you're flat. But yet I always hearing people talking and learn they do understanding of that's coming into gym. That's the same subject of social. Yes. Yes. And well, I've never had a class that totally went over even the catechism in general until when I was younger that explained uh, you know as far as the one hour before. The whole meaning of that when you come to church on Sunday. And uh, so I appreciate it. There's, you know, the wisdom that can be there. But uh, that, that was the thing that it just didn't bother me. Like you say, God loves everybody and respects the church of ignorance and hopes that maybe someday they will acquire this wisdom to understand. And then when you do come to church, I'm trying to pray, and as the gentleman was saying, it's hard when people are, you've got people talking here and here and here, and I thought it was a place to meditate. What irritates me is that I'm in the middle of some prayers and so forth. Okay, now we got to say this prayer and I say hello to everybody. And 
know. Well, you're right. You're you're right. Unfortunately, that shows, and you use the right word, that shows the ignorance of a lot of people as to what the mass really is. It is not a time to socialize. If you want to socialize, that's what the narsic, narthex is outside the, para, uh, the church itself. Many churches have a sign as you walk in, you know, this is a house of worship, silence, please. Yeah. Yes, Vincent? Well, <laughs> telling Father George is, uh, well, if it's not part of his whole uh, will, you know, why bother? Um, I, I shouldn't say that. He's done a lot of very nice things for the parish. Uh, but it's, it's ignorance on the part of the people there. It is not a time to socialize. You know, a few words out of necessity, fine. But the main purpose of being there for Mass is to worship the Father through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and participation with understanding is very important. Unfortunately, because we don't have Catholic schools anymore, or we have, don't have a lot of adult education, programs that people attend, um, we are losing the meaning and the purpose of our faith. And, you know, that's why I'm here, to do what little I can to help out in filling in where I can to help you better understand what's going on. So the Mass is the reenactment or the representation of the death and resurrection of Christ. I saw just the other day uh, somebody complaining that Catholics crucify Jesus every time they say Mass. You know, they're saying, you know, that the breaking of the host is like crucifying Christ all over again. That is totally wrong. It's a misunderstanding of what the Mass is. It's a representing of the actual death and resurrection of Christ for the purpose of honoring the Father and giving thanksgiving to the Father for accepting, and we'll talk more about accepting next week, but for accepting the sacrifice of his divine Son. If it were not for Christ and his death and resurrection, we would not be able to be reunited with the Father. Because as I've said over and over and over, God cannot live with man, sinful mankind. Mankind has to be purified before he or she can return to heaven to be with the Father forever. And if you totally ignore God and sin into a sinful way, you'll never get there. And the other part is, if it were not for Christ, 
you know, we would not, we would be locked up. You see, the time from Adam and Eve to the time of Christ's death and resurrection, mankind was locked out of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that all of those people that lived before went to hell. They were separated between the sheep and the goats, which Christ has talked about several times, but they had to wait. Those who died in the good graces of God had to wait until Christ fulfilled the divine sacrifice. And then the doors of heaven were open for those people who died in the good graces of God before Christ. We, after Christ's death and resurrection, can go, if we are holy enough and purified enough, we can go directly to heaven. If we still have some unfinished business as far as sin is concerned, then that is what purgatory is. But mankind has to be purified before he can get into heaven. Very important part. And that is why it's either God's way or, as I said, the highway, meaning to hell. No in-between. And if we don't understand that, we are endangering our eternal life. But Christ has given us the Holy Eucharist, the sacred mass, and the Eucharist to remember him on a daily basis or as frequently as we can go. And so when we read in the Gospels, particularly in chapter 28 of Matthew, which we will read and discuss next week, says, I will be with you always until the end of the world. Which means, of course, that there will be an end at some point in time. I think we're fast getting there now. Um, but how is he going to be with us? In two separate ways. Physically, through the body and blood that we receive in the Mass. And Excuse me. He will be with us through the Holy Spirit that is given to us in the time of baptize, baptism and then uh, reawaken in the sacrament of confirmation. So God has given us himself in two ways. And do we welcome that? Do we understand it that way? Do we recognize it and, you know, welcome him into our life on a daily basis? The first words that we should be saying is, thank you, Lord, for a good night's sleep and welcome to my day. Welcome to my life, or words of that kind. To recognize him the moment we get up. And the last thing we should say at night is, Good night, Lord, be with me through the night, or something of that kind. But recognize that God is with you all the time, but you have to be aware of it. Let us go on.
after the Last Supper, that is called the. There's a point in the uh, in the uh, Jewish Seder which still exists today that they consume four cups of wine. You know, small cups, not big. Small, uh, and these are ceremonial drinks. They can drink in between, of course. Uh, but there are certain specific prayers that go with each one of these uh, four cups of wine. And the last one is in thanksgiving for the presence of God in their service. It, and if you read the four versions of the Last Supper, well, three, because there's not, there isn't any one in the Gospel of John, um, you will see that Jesus only drinks three cups of wine, not the fourth. They get up and Jesus says, come, let's go. And they go off into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is over in the past the Kidron Valley. The purpose of not consuming the last cup of wine at the Last Supper was because when Jesus is asking for wine from the cross, that is when he consumes the last cup on the cross because he says, now it is finished. Meaning his whole purpose in life is finished. And the job that he came for is now finished. And that is when he drinks the sour wine that is given to him on a rod or a reed. So these things all fit together. And it's up to us to kind of try to put them together in our minds so that they're more meaningful to us. The other thing is, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, for approximately three hours. We have no idea for sure, but the church honors that time period in the form of the three hours on Good Friday. One of the things that are, he calls out or says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, so many people will stop right there and say, see, told you, you know, he doesn't want to be there, so forth. And that's not the, that's not true. Throughout his teaching, Jesus has quoted from the Old Testament many, many times. And this time he is quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with those very words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 practically is a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. The first part is. But the second part is a victory song. And that is actually a prophecy of the resurrection. So what Jesus is saying, in other words, I'll put them in my local common words, is, hey, look, guys, I'm suffering up here. But what I'm doing is really fulfilling Psalm 22. 
and you guys are not going to win out because, you know, the Jewish leaders wanted him crucified to get him out of the way, and that would be the end of it. Well, of course, it wasn't. It was just the beginning. Really, the beginning. Does that make sense? All right, so after the Last Supper, they go off into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a very common place for them to not only go, but when they didn't have lodgings elsewhere, you know, it wasn't easy to house 12 or 13 guys, uh, so they would sleep outdoors. And in this garden, which was <coughs> not too far from the east side of the temple, the way the temple is built is on the corner or the ledge of a plateau. Let me just erase this for a moment. Well, I thought I had it here. I'll use, I'll have to use this one. I'm not a Rembrandt, but you know, I'll do my best. Jerusalem is built on a plateau of this kind. You would never know it today because, you know, there's buildings all around it. But the temple was built on this corner here. This is west and this is east. All right, Mediterranean is over here. This is what is called the Kidron Valley. And then the Garden of Gethsemane is over in this part here. This is often referred to as the place of Hades, or sometimes Gehenna, but that's in, improper. So this was a sort of a garbage dump down in here, and then later became more of a, a uh, olive garden, which extended up in, in there. And they would spend the night over in the Garden of Gethsemane, because it was an olive garden and still is. There are olive trees there that they have proven were still were there way back at the time of Christ. It's rather an interesting place, and they've kept it pretty much looking like a grove, an olive grove. All right. yeah. But anyways, it was their uh, habit to go over there and spend time in prayer. And so after the Seder, Jesus goes over there with his disciples. And that is where Judas comes in with uh, a band of Roman soldiers and also a lot of the temple rulers to arrest Jesus. <coughs> and it spends, uh, they spend uh, all evening the all and quite a bit of the next day. They carry on a, a mock trial at night, which was forbidden by Jewish law, 
but you know they ignored the laws. They felt that they were above the law, uh, and they want to put him to death. Again, not so much because of what he was preaching and teaching. It was that he was uh, attracting so many followers that they were afraid of losing their jobs and their position, their titles, etc., which, of course, they all did anyways uh, some years later. But they were also afraid of the Romans coming in, which, of course, they did also. But when Judas sees what happened, he then is so mortified of what he did and so (coughs) depressed that he goes out and hangs himself. Now, even Judas would have been forgiven if he had turned to Jesus and asked for forgiveness. Because God promised anybody that sincerely turns from an evil way and asks for forgiveness will be forgiven. We sometimes wonder about some uh, modern day people who do atrocities and whether they will go to heaven or do they automatically deserve hell. Well, that's not up to us. That's not our prerogative. Uh, But Jesus has told us over and over If you turn from your ways and repent and do good, you will be forgiven. But they take Jesus, scourge him, they crown him with thorns, they spit upon him, uh, they take his clothes off, you know, and and, uh, whip him 39 times. How do we know 39? The Jewish law was, and the common Roman law was, 40 lashes for the worst offense. And the Jewish people always say, no, 40 minus 1, because of they don't want somebody to die just because of that. Um, how many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? You can hear in the background the Roman soldiers going uno, duo, tre, quattro, cinque, etc. You can hear them every time they do a whipping. But it's done in Latin, not in Italian or or Jewish. Uh, That's an interesting movie. How many of you would like to see it? Uh, not too many, not too many. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that, yeah, that's pretty gruesome. But a lot of people will say, well, I don't like to see Jesus all, you know, dirtied up. Uh, and the crosses that we have look like he just came out of a shower, you know. <laughs> when you consider 40 lashes with a whip, with uh, seashells on the end of it, hitting every part of your body and spitting and the crown of thorns being jammed onto your head 
and all of that, how could you expect the body to look like it just came out of a shower? It is, is, it is beyond belief and, you know, as Bev just said, looking at uh, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the whipping scene is very difficult to watch. Yes, very difficult to watch, but we've got to remember that actually happened. That happened, that happened. The way of the cross is interesting also. Uh, in that same movie, uh, Jesus' mother, I think it was portrayed extremely well. His mother realizes what is going on, but she's not hysterical like most mothers would be because she knows that there is a purpose. There is a meaning for it. And she is very upset, of course, but she follows him sort of in the background on the way of the cross all the way to Golgotha along with her few other ladies. And she meets him at one point in time. And it's a, <coughs> it's a scene that uh, is just heartbreaking. Excuse me. There's nothing said. Of course, the entire movie now is done in Aramaic with subtitles, so you won't understand the words. But you get so lost in the story that you don't need any voice. You, you can understand what's going on. And there's really nothing said. It's just the visual contact between Mary and Christ at that point. <clears throat> it's overwhelming. But uh, I watch it almost every Good Friday, and I'm going to watch it again this Friday and show it to a number of people where I live. Um, but it's it's something that we should all be aware of because it is so important. This is agony beyond imagine. The cross in itself, the death. Uh, there's a, um, is, Mary, is Mary here to chat? Oh, there's, okay. Mary gave me um, a booklet that describes the Shroud of Turin. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the Shroud of Turin. And the scientific understanding of what went on from all kinds of photographs and testing. And they said that the agony that Jesus um, endured, not only on the cross, but on the way to the cross, carrying the cross itself. Now, Jesus did not carry the cross as we often think about it, like this. It was just the outer uh, crossbar, not the whole thing. Because okay. most of the crosses in those days were trees that had been left, the trunk was left, it was just the branches that were stripped off, and the crossbar then was hoisted up and put on a notch 
at the top of the tree that was left. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Jesus being nailed to a, well, first of all, carrying that big piece of wood and then being nailed to it and then hanging on that for three hours. He actually died of asphyxiation because when the body hangs like this over a long period of time, the muscles within the upper torso decline and he cannot breathe. And so it is actually asphyxiation. And then, of course, to make sure that he was dead, the uh, centurion jabs him with a spear through his heart. Um, the whole movie is is overwhelming, really. And a lot of people uh, just can't look at it. But it's worthwhile, I think. Uh, anyways, the death on the cross was really the end of Jesus' mission here on earth. And in the process, he looks after his mother, but he gives his mother not only to John the Apostle, but he gives his mother to all mankind. And we are to look to his mother, really, as our mother in heaven. It's a, a very powerful scene. It's a very powerful real-life tragedy that actually took place for our benefit. For our benefit. Because without it, we could never be returned to the Father. Yes, yes it does. Yeah. Unfortunately, too many people look at it in the same way that they would look at Gone with the Wind or some other great movie and then, you know, <clears throat> turn it off and forget about it. And I don't see how you can really do that if you take it to heart. But whether you see the movie or not, uh, understand what our Good Friday service is all about. Because most of what I've talked about today is reenacted in one way or the other in our Good Friday service. And on the vigil service Saturday evening, even the Psalm 22 is in there included the Stations of the Cross on Friday, etc. Uh, this whole Holy Week service is a reenactment in many ways of what I've discussed up here. But I hope that you'll take them to heart and say that these were intended for you, you personally, each one of you. It is not just something that you go to uh, because it's Easter and on Sunday, you know, you're going to get with the children and all the bunny rabbits and that kind of stuff. That kind of turns me off when it's done in place of something far, far, far more important. 
Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. Eleanor? No, um, but all of the prophets were killed in some way. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah was hounded all the way to Egypt and actually died in Egypt. He didn't die in Jerusalem uh, like most of the others did. Uh, so it wasn't fulfilling any specific prophecy that I'm aware of, uh, but it fulfilled what happened to all of the prophets in general. They were all killed uh, by the Jewish people themselves because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. Uh, Eleanor? No, no, he didn't use. The money was when he see he finally when he finally woke up to what he did and the consequences of what he did. Instead of you know Jesus becoming a great earthly king, uh, he became the greatest of the divine kings. <clears throat> so Judas finally woke up to that fact. And so he took the money back to the temple rulers and threw it in the temple. Uh, no, I was just saying that they referred back to Acts chapter 1 where it said that he had used it. The, the point of it was the land was purchased and he could have perfect, you know, for bearing those for it. But that he used that money himself to buy the land, had an accident, fell headlong. No. All his insights came out. It was pretty hard. Well, yeah, no. Uh, that is that is the kind of uh, that is a traditional thinking, but not verified. I've never heard it. No, yes, I've heard it. Uh, but he did not buy the land. The temple rulers bought the land with the money after it was thrown back at them in the temple. All right. But Judas said, you know, his, he was hung and he died in hanging. I know that. Yeah, okay. No, I don't know either. No, I've heard that story as well, but no, it has, there's no verification of it. Any other questions? I have one. Yes. Going back a little bit, you went so quick, not quickly, I just don't want to stop you. Going back to 26.7, and again in 26.18, it talks about the pouring of the oil, uh, which led to Jesus. But then it goes back and refers to 12.3 and John stating that this was Mary. Now, was this, which Mary was, is this Mary Magdalene? We don't know. No, there, there's, <clears throat> I, I know what you're talking about, um, but the scripture themselves says that there was no name mentioned. Exactly. Uh, and so we don't know. It would not certainly have been his mother. 
definitely. And unlikely it would have been Mary Magdalene. But Mary was such a common name at that time. There were several Marys. Yes, yes. Uh, that there were several Marys mentioned in the Bible, and it's kind of hard to figure out who's who. My other concern, just as, these are just opinions. It's all right. Where they have the house of the last supper, he told them to go into the city and there will be a man. Uh, where did they have the insight? Where did the man have the insight to know that here comes his disciples and are asking them? Well, Jesus yeah. said that. And of course, Jesus right. being. Well, they didn't know who this man was, but did this man know because of the miracles? Did you heard of the miracles and then did he know? Well, the, the, the men knew who the man was because Jesus said, You will meet a man with a donkey. And to take the donkey, or, you know, I'm using my own words here. So he must have previously known him, perhaps? Well, you know, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you're. Uh, being God, he knows everything, you know. <clears throat> and of course, like I said, he knew that he was going to die and how. So obviously, he would have known that too. Yes, Susan? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you, yes, in in a way, you're you're right, except it was the Roman soldiers that came to arrest because the Jewish temple rulers couldn't have done that. But they could have pointed out. You're right. They could have pointed out. So yeah, the the kiss of Judas, and that's of course where we get the phrase the kiss of death. Yeah. Um, no, that was uh, somewhat unnecessary, but it adds to the drama. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Louisa. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, I've heard that, but that was never verified. Yeah. No. No. Any other? Yes. When someone was um, sent into the crucifixion, were they automatically scourged and all, or is this just something that happened to Jesus in addition to everything? Well, all right. The question is, were other people who were crucified, scourged and beaten and treated in the same way. Right, that's what you asked. And I would think not. They did this primarily because they recognized that the people 
wanted or recognized Jesus as a prophet. So they wanted to follow up and do all that they could to discredit Jesus. And that's why they did a lot of the mocking and the crown of thorns was all done for mocking purposes. And I don't think that other prisoners uh, were treated the same way. I know the clothes were taken off because they were treated as slaves once they were. Yes, yes. Crucifixion was the worst form of death possible at that time. And I think it still is for that matter. Um, because, like I said, it's actually asphyxiation. So you hang there for quite a while. Uh, and then, if they don't die, see, that was the day of Passover. And they had to get rid of the body and everything else before sundown. Because the, the Passover um, celebration started at sundown. And so they went and broke the legs of the other two uh, thieves that were crucified at the same time. That, that's probably the only punishment that they got besides the crucifixion. Yeah. Doris? Yes, yes. Well, they knew he was already dead. So there was no point in it, but that is fulfilling a <clears throat> that is fulfilling a prophecy in itself. Uh, Psalm one eighteen talks about uh, the I think it's one eighteen uh, talks about his body uh, will not be desecrated and his bones will not be broken. Yeah. Yes, Sonny. Well, it's not a last name, it's a title. Or a, a, yeah. Iscariot was uh, his family name, and it was part of one of the many um, political parties within the Sanhedrin. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's more of a title than it is a, a, a name. Uh, Mel, I'm still confused about Judas. Yes. Um, we all believe, because the gospel says so, that he hung himself. However, which version are we supposed to believe? Because in Acts, right here, it says, he bought a parcel of land with the wages of his iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his insides spilled out. This became known to everyone who lived in Jerusalem, so that the parcel of land was called in their language al Sadama, that is, seal of blood. All right, now, when they talk about he, are they specifically referring in there to Judas? Yes, because the line before that, he, they said uh, on Acts 17, chapter <clears throat> 2, said That's... he was numbered among us and was allotted a share of his ministry. Yeah. Well, that's that's what Eleanor was right. bringing up. Uh, I don't know. Frankly, I've never put those two together. Mm. So I'll look into it. 
and see if there's any connection and let you know. But my my gut feel is that the gospel overrides the Acts of the Apostles. Even though the Acts were written by the same person uh, of Luke who wrote the third gospel. So, but the church has always recognized Judas as hanging himself, which of course ended his life there. Now, in the hanging process, there is the possibility that his organs were eventually exposed in some way. Uh, but to my knowledge, there's no reference to that. Well, that's true. When they cut him down, that could have happened. Um, yeah. In the in the movie, The Passion of Christ, it appears that the body has hung there for several days and has rotted. Yeah, it's a very very quick, you know, view. But uh, Katie, mm, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was overdone on the case of Jesus and the other minor <clears throat> thieves and so forth. They didn't go to that extent because you know, there was no no purpose to it. No. Oh. Yes. Yeah, there there was a, a back and forth uh, debate, you might say, and Pilate <clears throat> Pilate really didn't want to do this, uh, so he thought that by having him scourged that would be sufficient, but it wasn't. So then fi finally Pilate says, "Do whatever you want yourself." Yeah, but then you see the. Jewish people cried out, let his sin be upon us and our children. And of course, that has been true. Judaism, and let me, well, this is something that I really want to bring up next week, but in a way it works into what you were just saying. Why do you think that Jesus, or God, I should say, waited roughly 40 years from the time of Christ's crucifixion to the time of the destruction of the temple. Yes. 40 years is a long period of time. Yes, yes, that's, that's right. Uh, God, being a perfect, loving God, wanted the people to have a time to think about it. And of course, after the writing of the Gospels and the letters of Paul, they had sufficient knowledge there to better understand what they themselves did wrong and to repent 
And when they didn't, that is when God permitted the Romans to come in and destroy the temple, which in fact destroyed Judaism in all of its structure and format because the priesthood no longer existed and the people were so confused uh, that Judaism sort of uh, almost died out for a short period of time. And then roughly 200 years later, uh, it was sort of resurrected, but not to the degree that it was at the time of Christ. So... Well, we've covered a great deal of territory this morning. Jennifer? No, there's no, no, there is no other structure. Um, They do, uh, and this is on a sort of voluntary basis, but you see Judaism broke into three different uh, classifications or groups or whatever you want to call them, the Orthodox, the Reformed, and the Conservative. Um, But there is no hierarchy of any kind equal to what we have in Rome. No. And there has not been. The Talmud, which is a combination of the Mishnah and uh, another book, I forget the name, starts with a G, is probably their primary book in addition to the Bible. And it lists all these 613 laws uh, and an explanation of it and why and so forth. Um, That is the only structure that they have. So each person who is ordained as a rabbi is sort of on his own from there on. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Well, again, I hope you take all of this to heart and we'll talk more about it next week. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for helping us to better understand the whole idea of the life and death of Christ and the culmination of his mission and the reparation uh, of our sins that it represents. We ask that you help us then to really give us more (coughs) impetus to strengthen our faith, our understanding, and our belief in you and in Christ Jesus as well as the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.